Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Well, I think it's fair to say that quite a lot has happened since uh, at least some of us uh, were last in this room three years ago. Now, just a quick show of hands. Hands up if you weren't on the church weekend away here three years ago. You're, you're, you're relatively new to the church in the last three years, or you just weren't around last time. Hands up. Okay, round of applause for these guys. You are so incredibly welcome here. You really are. It's, it's a joy uh, to... Uh, have you here with us. A, a fair bit's happened uh, in the last three years, and probably, <laughs> I'm not wearing the same clothes. Uh, <laughs> looking half asleep there as well. Uh, okay, don't, don't, whoever did that, don't, don't look at that. Uh, quite a lot has happened, although obviously not so much there. Uh, in the last three years, I'm on a tight time schedule here, Johnny. Um, and probably for all of us, as well as having much to be grateful for over those last three years, I think it's probably fair to say we've faced more than our fair share of challenge, more pain, probably more disappointment than we ever could have imagined. There are so many different hopes and plans that over the last three years we've had to rip up. And it's been tough, hasn't it? You know, I think there is a time just to survive. I think of that line in the book of Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a time. And there's a time when we just need to get through. We don't need an inspirational pep talk. We just need to survive. And that's okay. The fact we are still here that is a cause for celebration. Right at the very outset, I want to say, well done. Well done just for being here. And although I'm certainly not suggesting that things from this point on are about to get so much easier, I mean, with the ongoing war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis destined to spiral in the months to come, numerous challenges I know many of us are facing in our own personal lives right now. The call to simply keep going, I think, is as relevant now as it's ever been. But that being said, I do believe that we are entering a new season. And so what I want you to do, not just this morning, but really over this whole weekend, is to start dreaming again. For sure about our lives individually, but more than that, to dream together about our future as churches, about the kinds of churches we want to grow into and what it is God has for us next. And really, to help us with this, I want to dip into the famous story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, just to let you know what's going to happen this morning, the vast majority of this talk 
is going to be looking at lots of words on the screen as I give you a brief whistle-stop tour of the story of Joseph. It's going to be a lot of Bible, a lot of story that will lay the foundation uh, for the rest of this talk and also the talk this evening. But we're going to pick it up in Genesis 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhar and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. And so, one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They just couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundles stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon, Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers all about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, the moon, the 11 stars bowed low before me. This time, he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Let's pause there. Right at the beginning of the story, I think it's fair to say we are set up for some conflict. Part of it was Jacob's fault because he made it abundantly clear that Joseph was his favorite. Part of it, I think, is fair to say was Joseph's fault because, among other things, he insisted on telling tales on his brothers. Never a move if you want to be popular with your siblings. And it could be argued that part of it was actually God's fault, because God kept giving Joseph these dreams that got him into a whole lot of trouble. But here's the thing. As long as God has been in relationship with people, which is quite a long time, He's been giving them, he's been giving us dreams from Abraham way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis all the way through to John right at the end in the book of Revelation. God's people have always been dreamers. Now just to say, when I speak of dreams, I don't just mean literal dreams when we're asleep, although God can 
certainly speak to us through those kinds of dreams. And in preparation for this weekend, I've been praying specifically for some people in the room to receive dreams as they sleep at night that are God speaking directly to them. God can speak in those kind of ways, but I mean it in a much broader sense than that as well. It could be any kind of vision for your future and the role that you are to play in God's story. It could be a prophetic word that's been spoken over your life. It could just be a gut feeling that this thing is going to happen one day, or an idea in your mind's eyes that you just can't quite shake off. Maybe your dream is to do with your career, or a business that you'd like to start one day, or a project that you'd love to do, or about marriage, or children, or maybe your own character, the kind of man or woman you want to grow and mature into. Maybe it has to do with a justice issue, maybe a problem in our day. But my guess is that pretty much for each of us in this room right now, there is some kind of a dream deep in our hearts. And the chances are, at least some of those dreams, certainly not all of them, but some of them originated from God himself. And I want you to know, these dreams play a key, key role in our life. See, without them, We would just get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, busyness, digital distractions, the materialism of our day. We just wander our way through life and end up squandering it on a whole load of really trivial, inconsequential stuff. But dreams have the potential to act like a compass to keep us on track. In the language of self-help gurus, they help us start with the end in mind. Or to put it another way, dreams are how God leads and guides us into our identity and our calling, to be who God really made us to be and to do the kind of things that God ultimately made us to do. But you probably don't need me to tell you that dreams are also really tricky things to live with because there's always a gap between the dream and its fulfillment. That gap could just be a few days long or a few months long, maybe a few years long, a few decades long, sometimes even a few generations long. And in that gap, We run the whole gamut of hope, faith, excitement, anticipation, all the way through to impatience, doubt, disappointment, cynicism, and despair. Which is where I think the story of Joseph is really helpful for us. See, it's this brilliant example of how you and I are to live and to live well in that gap between the dream and its eventual fulfillment. Because for Joseph, and my guess is probably it's the same for you as well, that journey from dream through to fulfillment is anything but a straight line. It's perhaps one step forward, two steps back. It's honestly a very long and a very windy road. In the end, it's absolutely worth it, but in the middle, it's the cause often of much frustration and even pain. 
Now look, it would take uh, the rest of the morning to, to read the whole of Joseph's story. It's about 10 chapters long. So I'm just going to dip into it. I'm going to read a few of the key moments along the way. And as I said before, there's going to be lots of text, but I want you to get an overview of the story this morning. And then uh, right at the end, I want to talk about what it means very practically for you and for me. I'm going to give you just one main point this morning, and I'm going to try and apply it more to us as individuals. And just so you know where we're heading at the end, uh, there will be a bit of time to pray and respond to this message. And then this evening, we're going to return to the story. I'm going to draw out a further three lessons. And this evening, I'm going to apply them more to the mission that we're on together as churches. All that being said, let's now return to the story. If you remember at the point where we left it, there was a whole load of hostility and hatred brewing towards Joseph. And it comes to a head one day when Jacob suggests to Joseph he goes out to the fields to check up on his brothers, which apparently was something Joseph quite enjoyed doing. And so he heads off to find his brothers. While he is still some distance away, his brothers see him coming and they hatch a cunning plan. Verse 18, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns. We can tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But as they plot, they look up, and they see on the horizon a group of traders coming towards them. And they conclude, why kill him when we can sell him and make some money for ourselves? Skip down to verse 28. And so when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him up out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver and the traders took him to Egypt. Now, here's all I want you to notice. Joseph has a dream, and then the very next story is the exact opposite of that dream. Instead of Joseph's brothers bowing down to him as their ruler, Joseph is bowing down to all sorts of other people as their slave. And then, if you know the story, to make matters worse, just as Joseph eventually begins to see some light at the end of the tunnel, he has this run-in with his boss's wife, and although he is the innocent party, he ends up being thrown into prison. Years go by, and then we read this, chapter 40, sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with those two officials and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. 
Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. So go ahead, tell me your dreams. And Joseph then interprets the dreams. Three days go by, and both of the interpretations of the dreams come true. The baker is put to death, and the cupbearer is restored to his former role, just as Joseph, with God's help, had predicted. Then look at the closing line. Verse 23, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Just imagine how this must have felt for Joseph. You have this dream that you feel is from God, and then a whole host of circumstances conspire against you, and you find yourself seemingly heading in the complete opposite direction. And all the time, you can still hear God. You can interpret other people's dreams. You see other people's dreams fulfilled, but your own dreams remain seemingly forgotten. The baker, the cupbearer, they have dreams that come to pass just in a matter of days. Joseph has a dream And years and years and years go by, and there's nothing. He's literally left to rot in prison. Turn the page, chapter 41, verse 1. Two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed. It's like, now everyone's dreaming, even Pharaoh. I mean, there are dreams left, right, and center in this story. Now, you can read about Pharaoh's dream for yourself later on if you want, but it's basically this surreal set of images culminating in some scrawny cows eating some fat cows and some thin heads of grain swallowing up some plump heads of grain. And quite understandably, Pharaoh wakes up pretty confused. And so he summons all of his advisors and wise counselors to try and make sense of it all. Eventually, his cupbearer remembers how Joseph had interpreted his dreams in prison all those years before. And so verse 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. And so, out of nowhere, Joseph goes from a prison cell to right slap bang in front of the most powerful man on earth at that time. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means, but I have heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. It's beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but... God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Now again, just want you to notice something. All of that cocky ego and arrogance of Joseph's youth has now gone. It's like it's been beaten out of him. Uh, At this point in the story, he's older, he's wiser. Now there's a humility about him. And remarkably, despite everything he's been through, there is still a faith in God. 
And so Pharaoh shares his dream. Joseph interprets it, and then skip down to verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You'll be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. And so Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I'm Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. And so now, remarkably, finally, the dream is beginning to come to pass. It's like everything is dramatically turned upside down. The slave has now become the ruler. And as the story unfolds, there's this famine, and Joseph's family are out of food. And so his brothers travel to Egypt to buy grain. And guess who it is that's the one they have to negotiate with? Any guesses? Joseph. Joseph's the one. Chapter 42, verse 6. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, read it with me, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Does that sound familiar to something earlier in the story? Joseph recognized his brothers instantly but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. I bet he did. Where are you from, he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he had had about them many years before. Now to cut a long story short, the brothers return home completely oblivious to the identity of Joseph. A few more years pass, they return to buy more food from Egypt, and then we read this. Chapter 43, verse 26. When Joseph came home, they gave him the gifts they brought him, then bowed low to the ground before him. A whole lot more drama follows until Joseph can't hold it in any longer. Chapter 45, verse 4. The last bit of the story we're going to read together. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. Notice it was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there'll be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was 
God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. It's like Joseph can see that all those years of pain, all the suffering, all the waiting was actually full of meaning and purpose. Not one moment was lost or wasted. God used it to save the lives of many. He he was able to miraculously bring life and salvation out of all the grief, all the heartache, all the loss, all the betrayal, all the pain. That's quite some story, isn't it? And I think there's a tremendous amount we can learn from all of this about how to live in that gap between a dream and its fulfillment. But for now, I simply want you to see that the fulfillment of the dream is very different to what Joseph initially imagined. Don't normally do this, but say it with me, very different. Very different. One more time, very different. All he sought to start with was his brothers bowing down to him. But he didn't see Egypt. He didn't see being sold into slavery. He didn't see prison. He didn't see a seven-year famine. He didn't see any of that. He sees a little, but he's blind to a lot. And I think dreams are often like that. As John Mark Comer puts it, the reality is to the dream what a tree is to the seed. It's like all the raw materials are there in the seed, but it is just a fraction of the whole. It's like when we get a dream from God, whether it's a literal dream in our sleep or more of a vision in our mind's eye, or a desire, or an idea, or or whatever it is, we might get 5% of the full picture. Perhaps we'll get 50% of it, but there are still whole chunks that are missing. We might think we can see crystal clear into the future, but most of the time, in reality, it is fuzzy and unclear. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, Now we know in part, but then we'll know in full. Or as N.T. Wright puts it, all prophecies about the future are merely signposts pointing into the fog. In other words, we don't get a crystal clear photograph. We just see this faint outline obscured by a whole lot of fog. And I think that's because... More often than not, the point of a dream isn't actually to tell you what's going to happen in the future. It's to tell you how to live in the present. I think there's this human bent in probably all of us to want to know the future because we think that knowledge is power. And we think that if we can know the future, then we can have control over the future. And if we have control over the future, then we don't have to trust God. But I think the main thing that God is wanting to teach us is to simply trust and surrender to Him. You know, 
God is not looking to develop more control in us. He wants us to grow in faith. That's why he rarely tells us exactly what's going to happen, or for that matter, when it's going to happen. Instead, he'll show us just enough about tomorrow to show us how to live today, what choices to be making in the here and now, the kind of person we need to become for whenever it is the dream finally comes to pass. And because of that, when the dream does come to pass, most of the time, it is very different to what we were expecting. I'll talk more about this this evening, but what I've come to learn is that the reality will often be unrecognizable from what I'd imagined when I first received the dream from God. 